start driving now And we'll do all our thinking out loud And wait for daylight Welcome to another episode of A People's Theology. I'm the host of A People's Theology, Mason Meninga. In this episode, I talk with Jarrell Robinson-Brown. Jarrell is a liberation theologian and Anglican priest. He is also the author of the recent book, Black, Gay, British, Christian, Queer, The Church and the Famine of Grace. Also musically featured throughout this episode is Watashi Wa. Watashi Wa was an indie rock band from California. You can get connected with Jarrell and Watashi Wa and their work in the links in the episode description. If you're a fan of a people's theology, it would bring me no greater joy than if you gave the podcast a five-star rating and review. Tell me what you like about the podcast. Also, if you feel so inclined, please support my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Mason Meninga. There are multiple tiers with wonderful rewards, including papers I write to even a book club. Enough of my rambling. Enjoy more inspiring and liberating theology. We spoke of Shinobi one night Today we have Jarrell Robinson Brown and Jarrell, on top of uh, not only being a former Methodist, but you also recently wrote a book that makes you sound like you're a current Lutheran. <laughs> but uh, you do lots of other things in the world. You are um, a Anglican priest and you do so many more things. Uh, but uh, who is Jarrell Robinson Brown to Jarrell Robinson Brown? Wow, gosh, I sometimes wonder. I'm a, I'm a younger brother, which is quite important a son, a partner, um, best friend, all those things. Someone who's trying to be a scholar and theologian and writer and a dog dad as well. And I love my dog. And so. a very cute dog, by the way. The best, May the I best add. Amazing. <laughs> those little ears just always perking up. Really, it does I look know. like a rabbit at all times, doesn't he? Bless him doing like prayers and stuff. He's just there listening out for the <laughs> voice of God. <laughs> that's right. That's right. So you just released your first book, Black, Gay, British, Christian, Queer. So great. Like, you know, a lot of these books these days, you know, they're like actual sentences or whatever. And yours is just like a bunch of adjectives. Cool things. Love it. So uh, you just released your first book. And because it's your first book, I'm sure there was a huge learning process to it. What was something that you learned about yourself as you wrote it? So it's really interesting. So this is the first thing that I've done that isn't self-published. So I've written a few other things that I've pub- published myself, but it's the mm. first time I've worked with an actual publishing company to, to get this work done. And I think the thing I learned about myself, particularly through the pandemic, is that I have a very strict kind of writing pattern, which involves going to libraries and doing lots of reading and then writing. And of course, I couldn't do that in the pandemic because mm. the libraries were shut. So <laughs> I learned that about myself pretty quickly. And also that I, I clearly process a lot over kind of dinner and coffee with friends and of course that also couldn't happen so I realized that my my writing process did involve a lot of things that the lockdown put an end to for me you know and also that I I didn't hate working with um, you know a typesetter and a proofreader and a copy editor as much as I thought I might do. Was the collaboration piece a little daunting when you first started? Definitely. Definitely. I think, you know, having other people kind of in control of one of the reasons I've self-published for so long is because I wanted to be in control of how it looks, you know, um, what's done to it and what the final product is. So there was a lot of trust involved kind of handing your work over mm-hmm. and knowing that people were going to like take bits out of it and tell you to be right certain things and challenge right. 
how you phrased it. So that was that was scary. How how do you feel like uh, the kind of overall product finished out? Um, considering this was the first kind of collaborative piece, I think for me it's it's ended up being a very different book to what I thought, and a lot of that mm-hmm. I think I kind of say a bit of that in the preface that you know when I signed the contract it was a different <clears throat> different country completely in terms of the UK. Mm-hmm. I mean here in comparison to the states, like the church was not talking about race in any serious way, like at mm. all. The country, I think, was not really talking about race in a serious way, in my own eyes, um, at all. Whereas now, you know, post George Floyd's murder, the whole kind of narrative and conversation did change. Mm. And so when I signed the contract in my head, I was like, gosh, I'm going to have to explain, you know, why speaking about race is important. And I'm going to have to explain all of these things for people who are not doing that kind of thinking. And of course, overnight, suddenly the church was, you know, apologizing for its role in the slave trade and trying to do mm-hmm, things about mm-hmm. uh, lack of diversity. And in the UK, that just hadn't really happened before. Um, so that was, it is a different book because of that. And a different book because of the pandemic, right? Mm-hmm, that actually, totally. I was writing about the vulnerability of Black lives and Black bodies within the church at a time when actually our bodies were more vulnerable because of this virus. Mm-hmm. And that in itself meant mentally, I think, I was in a very different place than Mm -hmm. I was when I signed the contract. So, Mm -hmm. interesting. So, this book is packed with theology. Uh, I was expecting it to be a little bit more memoirish, and then I started reading it, and obviously, there is lots of memoir to it, but it was packed with theology. So, you know, knowing that you're totally a scholar of Black liberation theology and queer theology and lots of other theologies, what did you learn theologically as you wrote the book that maybe you didn't know before? I think, and this is the thing that I would love to kind of talk to you about in detail, because um, I think I realized that I lacked, I think it's theological courage or like intellectual courage in the sense that I'm more orthodox, or I hate that word, right? I hate it a lot. (laughs) But what people would term orthodox, then I think I realized. Um, And I'm not sure how much of that is genuine in terms Mm -hmm. of how much of that is actual conviction, right? Or how much of it is a lack of courage when it comes to committing my perhaps more liberal and progressive thoughts to paper. Mm. And I was kind of shocked by like where I wasn't willing to go. And often I'd write stuff and I'd be like, I can't, I can't put this down. Um, and sometimes it was because I couldn't find a way of phrasing it that I thought was okay. But also I was very aware of the fact that the kind of the church's gaze in terms of its institutional hierarchy was there. And I couldn't get past that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I said this before, and it, um, at Oxford when I was talking about the book and talking about the process and I said there's a lot I think that I wasn't able to be completely honest about um, in terms of my own theological convictions and some things to do with you know sexual ethics as well where I would have liked to be bolder but actually as a member of the clergy Mm -hmm. that kind of intellectual honesty and just emotional honesty comes at a cost that lay theologians I think interact with in a different way yeah really inarticulate way of saying that I don't think I'm as courageous as other people think. <laughs> and that the book at times is a lot more orthodox than I, I thought it might be. Mm. That's really interesting. I mean, there's so many moments where this feels like a really brutally honest book. So it's interesting that you feel like at times you really were having to hold yourself back, at least theologically. Is there anything in terms of thoughts and ideas that you would have liked to put down that you're feeling, you feel comfortable sharing on the podcast? Yeah, I'm trying to, I think... 
I would have liked to have put a bit more, you know, I think often the church talks about the ideal when it comes to things like dating and relationships, right? That we talk about what the ideal relationship looks like. And that feeds its way into like our kind of conversations about marriage as well. Mm-hmm. So in the British context, at least, we have a very false conversation around human sexuality because we talk about the ideal. And I, I think I would have liked to have spoken about my own experience of dating in that to say that actually it almost doesn't matter what our ethics are because the reality is the reality. And I think that for Black LGBT plus people who are Christian, there comes a point where regardless of our ethics, we realize that we can't quite live up to that because of reality. And I think, mm. I think in the gay um, or the, the LGBT dating world, from what I know, it's very difficult to navigate that as a Christian with the burden of the kind of church's position on you. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I would have liked to have brought some of that in. I don't think I really talk about my own experience in relationships at all, really, which is a massive gray area, because I think if you're talking about human sexuality, you need to be able to bring that in. Mm-hmm. That's something I've learned from queer studies recently is obviously not just in terms of like, who are you romantically attracted to or whatever, but queer theology and queer studies have a lot to say about just what our relationships, even with like non-romantic relationships are like. And that's something that I find really interesting and fascinating and even compelling and challenging about a lot of queer studies and so yeah i can total i i have an idea of where you're thinking um and yeah there there's so much even within really progressive expressions of the church they're even unwilling to have those kind of conversations they're willing to have the conversation around like okay you can you know sleep with who this person or that person but it has to be within the confines of these types of relationships and yeah i don't know if the church is quite ready to have some of those broader conversations that i think queer studies would at least has taught me that i think we are maybe headed to or should be having those kind of conversations and so yeah that's the point at which i see myself as part of the problem because actually i'm also now i i I'm also part of holding up this false idea of the ideal because of where I'm not prepared to go. And that mm-hmm. is a tension that I really live with, that there's, there's something about that dynamic where you, you, you walk a really kind of you know, thin line between being part of the institution and being part of the real world and having to try and hold these two things together, which is often impossible, but it, it does make people like me part of the problem. And I'm, mm-hmm. I'm kind of like, what do I do with that? Mm-hmm. Totally. <laughs> you know, I'm working that out, yeah. I think. Absolutely. So your book is all about grace. And so I'd love to for you to unpack a little bit more about what you mean by grace. So what does grace mean to you? Or in other words, when you talk about grace in your book, what does it mean? Sure. So I think for me, I, I would like to say that grace is kind of the love of God in the shape of Christ. So grace, grace has a body and that body did and does things um, in the world. And for us to understand grace, we need to look at that body. So we need to look at what Jesus does in his life. So for me, grace is not a concept. We see grace outlived in the, the body of Jesus. And I think that when we see it like that, when we see it in that kind of, kind of way, it frees us from some of the limitations um, that other theologians have when they think about grace. And I was really challenged by, um, you know, scholars like Athanasius, for example, of Alexandria, so a fourth century African bishop, who really does, I think, a massive thing with the idea of the incarnation. So the idea that God becomes flesh in Christ by itself is a massive thing. But what Athanasius does is he, he sees us, 
just as we are, as the purpose of God's embodiment in Christ. And I find that really powerful because what mm-hmm. Athanasius does is link God becoming flesh in Jesus to our embodied lives. And he, he says that there is nothing in all creation that is barren of the image of God. Mm-hmm. And that love is the reason that God appears to us. Mm-hmm. And so Athanasius was really important in my own understanding of grace and thinking, okay, God leaves nothing barren of his divinity or, or God's knowledge. So what does that mean for LGBTQ plus bodies, particularly mm-hmm. black bodies? So I make this run from like grace as a concept to being embodied in a person. But then actually the, the person that helps me think this through really is Athanasius of Alexandria in a really helpful way. He's always been one of my favorite uh, kind of early church people. And yeah, I, I don't know if you would go as far as what I would be willing uh, around the incarnation, but it, it it's sort of based in Athanasius in that I believe that not only did God become human in flesh in the person of Jesus, but also that God is becoming flesh in all of our bodies at all moments, at all times. And yeah, I, it might be a little bit of a stretch of where Athanasius was, but it also, I think a little bit, you know, is based on the way that he thinks about the incarnation. And yeah, I love the way that you connect that to grace. Yeah, I, I think it's it's not something that I can disconnect from our kind of enfleshed reality. And I'm also really careful to not talk about grace in the context of or through the lens of sin. And I and that's mm. where like someone like me and Augustine would clash because right. Augustine doesn't seem to be able to talk about grace without talking about sin and essentially talking about the reform of the individual. And I, I have a problem with that because mm. I think when we talk about grace through the lens of sin in relation to LGBTQ plus people, that that kind of reform or salvation or whatever it is, embodiment of that grace, often looks like us becoming straight. And if we're black, it looks like us becoming white. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And so for me, there are huge problems with seeing grace as that which is evident in transformation. Mm-hmm. You're, that last piece that you just mentioned there about depending on who's the reader yeah. seems to really matter in this book, right? You're clearly not writing for just one audience. You're not just writing to white LGBTQ Christians, nor are you writing to just black Christians as well. You're writing to both and you're challenging both as well. And I find that such an important piece as you were writing and as I was reading the book. Can you talk a little bit more about like the thought process that went into knowing that both of those audiences were exactly who you had in mind? It was, I think that also was something that I discovered throughout the writing process. So at first I thought I was writing to a mainly white audience. And as I started writing, I was like, no, that's not, that's not who the audience is. And then I was like, is the audience a straight audience? Are they uh, you know, a Christian audience? Who, who is the audience? And it comes back to, I think, this idea that I think is a, is a kind of, an idea that we have to be growing up about to get, which is that we all have a knee on someone's neck. Mm-hmm. And that is a really, it's a difficult thing, I think, for those of us who, are often on the edge of feeling marginalized and oppressed to get our heads around because actually I meet a lot of heterosexual black folk who can't actually conceive of how their own power and privilege impacts other people. And so for me, there was a really big thing about trying to take that seriously that actually even my black audience need to understand how their own power and privilege plays out. And that actually my audience is not just a white heterosexual audience. So unlike lots of 
anti-racist books that are being written in the UK at the moment. This book is is kind of challenging on lots of different fronts. Um, mm. And that was a challenge for me, I think. But I also did want to deliberately kind of center the black experience or black experiences as kind of central and you know the focus of where the book is coming from mm-hmm. without explaining that experience too much. Yeah, absolutely. Sort of to go back on that and to go back to your conversation around grace throughout the book, you know, you're obviously writing from being black and Christian and LGBTQ. Can you talk a little bit more about how those identities and the stories around those identities that you've had, can you talk about how those stories have shaped and led to your current understanding of grace? Yeah, sure. Well, it's really interesting. So I was brought up by my grandmother, who was an orphan, and who used to speak about the grace of God all the time. And Mm. she literally saved my sister and I from like, experiencing a lot of the brutality of, you know, the foster system, because and the adoption system, presumably that all of that was a possibility for us. And because she took us in just as she had retired. So you know, the best part of her life, she gave to raising us basically, and she only died in 2019. And she gave you know, the whole of our, the rest of our life to us. And I think my image of Grace is very, very much attached to her and to my experience of her love and her care. But she also came out of a Jamaican context, which is the context I was brought up in. And that's also part of my heritage and identity. And often in, in the kind of Jamaican and, you know, the black spaces, I'm seen as being a contradiction in the sense that my black male body is seen as automatically heterosexual because, you know, nothing else exists. Mm. Um, and the assumption is, um, particularly when people see you in a dog collar, that, you know, at least if you don't have a wife, you're still heterosexual, even if you've chosen, you know, a celibate lifestyle or whatever it might be. But you're never given the option to kind of complicate your masculinity mm. um, within a Jamaican context. But then also my nan's Christianity was quite complex because I didn't think she had any idea of God excluding people or judging people because of their identity. So I, I lived with all these kind of different complexities, I think. Mm. And so I think grace for me was something I had to work out. I had my experience of growing up with my grandmother and then going to seminary to study theology in Cambridge, um, where, you know, the black experience was completely <laughs> not on the curriculum. You know, black theology was not a thing. There were no black theologians, you know, no black Christians really apart from us. This idea that kind of black folk had nothing to offer to the mm. church and had contributed absolutely nothing was what I experienced mm-hmm. um, studying theology in a, in a Cambridge seminary. So I was doing a lot of working out, I think, in my teenage years of, of you know, what does theology mean for me and my body and my experience. Um, but grace has been the thing that's got me through that. Mm. So that's a really complicated way of saying that. I think a lot of what I'm doing in the book is looking back to my experience of grace in the kind of embodied reality of my grandmother and of her love um, and seeing her as an image of how I see God, but also seeing that in scripture as well mm-hmm. and my own experience of God through prayer and through, through life and through ministry. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So that's a little bit about how your own story has led to your understanding of grace One of the other things that was apparent as I was reading the book was that you're sort of always navigating the interaction of being black, Christian, and queer. And that's just a constant thing that's happening throughout the book. And I would imagine, especially in the writing process, that that was something that was constantly coming up for you. And you're processing through 
your own experience in life time, right? And so I, I'm just kind of curious, as you were writing the book, what ways did you learn more about yourself and how those identities interact with one another? Yeah, I so I think one of the things I really noticed in the UK context is there were not many people, you know, the thing I noticed writing the book was I look so much across the pond for my inspiration in terms of how how to navigate a lot of this. But actually, mm-hmm. you know, I'm looking to people like James Baldwin and... and, mm-hmm. and Happy birthday yeah. to him, by the way. Exactly, it's today. Absolutely, love him. Um, he's been a huge inspiration to like everything my whole mm-hmm. life. I would not be here if it was not for him and his work. But also people like Emily Towns and Kelly Bound Douglas and Pamela Lightsey, who wrote the foreword for the book, who don't have to necessarily be, be Black, Christian and queer, but I think navigate that aspect of, ident- of people's identities in their work. And so I did feel like I was kind of starting almost from scratch, which sounds like a crazy thing to say, but in the UK, there are, there are not the same number of people to look to. Actually, the thing I think I learned about myself as well was that I was, I was ignorant about Black British queer history and had been denied that because of the interplay between race, faith, and, and um, identity. And that was the other thing. That I, I, there was a kind of grief there that actually I suddenly discovered all of these Black British queer role models from history that I had knew nothing about mm. because the, the way things have been constructed here is that I'm, I'm made to look to America for my role models and my inspiration. Mm. And that also made me realize that, you know, the book will matter for people here in a different way because for them, this will be the first thing that's kind of bringing these things together. So a major thing that I learned was that I, I, I felt quite kind of alone in this process. <laughs> now, actually, there were not the kind of people I could look to here to help me navigate some of that really tricky stuff. And that also, there were, there were some deep wounds in terms of you know, having to write about someone like Justin Fashionu, for example, who took his own life um, as, a, as a Black, um, one of the first openly gay footballers in the UK. You know, reading his story and reading how people denied him the ability to actually be a Christian. He used to talk about his faith all the time and reading extracts of people writing about him and basically saying that what caused his suicide was his Christian faith. And therefore, you know, his Christian faith wasn't genuine. It was just what made him want to die. Mm. And I was, you know, reading his work and thinking and watching interviews of him thinking, actually, the reason people are denying your possibility to actually be a Christian is, that, is because they can't imagine that you could have had a cohesive way of being black christian and queer mm-hmm. you know and I actually i want to afford him in my work the possibility of having had faith in christ mm-hmm. um and that actually having been okay you know but it's only because i've i've managed to hold these things together in my own body mm-hmm. that i think i can look back into his story and put those things together mm-hmm. but there was a genuine grief there about you know yeah. so much of his story was was kind of hidden because of how people had decided to read him. Mm-hmm. Early on in your book, you talk about how many Christians believe that they have like a role in teaching LGBTQ Christians about Jesus. And in response to that, a lot of times conversations, especially from like LGBTQ Christians, is that they're sort of defending themselves, like either biblically or theologically. And that's totally understandable. And that sort of literature and theological response, I think, is absolutely needed. But also, I think queerness is not something that only needs to be defended, but also that queerness can actually like teach us a lot about theology. And so I'm kind of curious about 
like what you think in particular, obviously being a queer Christian, what you think that queerness can teach Christianity and Christian theology? I think there's a lot that we as queer Christians have to do in terms of deconstruction that I think is healthy for the church on the whole. You know, and we're seen as being these kind of heretics who are trying to, you know, get rid of everything that seems to be of value. And actually, I look at the things that we as queer Christians have to work through, and I see so many other Christians who are just caught up in baggage and a lot of crap that actually has deeply messed them up, you know? Mm. And actually, there's a lot, I think, that queer Christians can can model and, and embody for other Christians generally because we've had to find our way through this stuff. Mm-hmm. And actually, we've, we've had to be bold and honest and courageous about who and what we are and what we feel about God in a way that I think straight Christians and, and white Christians in the UK haven't had to do because so much of the status quo does seem to kind of work for them. I'm not sure it does in reality, mm-hmm. but even when it doesn't, there's a kind of something that pushes folk, I think, to pretend as though it does. And so I think there's a deep honesty in kind of queer Christianity that does push back on a lot that I think the church needs to deal with anyway. Mm-hmm. And the other thing I would say is that I do feel, as I, you know, when I look at um, friends of mine who are LGBT plus, who have left the church, you know, that's what they've done. They've left the church. They ha- I don't see in them people of no faith. I don't see in them people who hate Christ or who hate the gospel. <laughs> Actually, those are the people in whom I see Jesus most clearly. Mm-hmm. And there's something really powerful for me about a lot of the new wine that the church is so desperate for being poured all around the edges of the church mm-hmm. and beyond its borders and beyond its walls. And I do think that's a movement of the spirit. And I think the church needs to, you know, cast its gaze beyond its walls because I, I see so much of the work of the Holy Spirit that the church is apparently desperate for happening all outside it. And I think that's also something that queer Christians can can offer the church is that, you know, this new new fresh air, as one of the Vatican II documents put it, that the church is so desperate to kind of let in, mm-hmm. you know, apparently it's desperate to let in. Mm-hmm. Um, definitely those two things, you know, the deconstruction and just the embodiment of mm-hmm. a healthier version of Christianity. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I'm going to read you a quote from, I think it's like either in the middle of the book or even in the latter part of the book, but I'm going to read you a quote that you said, okay? This is not me putting words in your mouth, okay? You said, God is a God for whom interconnectedness, community, fellowship, and relationship are part of God's nature, simply part of God's way of being. I have to say, Jarrell, you sound a lot like a process theologian here. I'm just (laughs) saying. I know. I think I might be one. I'm still in the closet Uh-oh. on that. Oh, <laughs> don't let your fellow Anglicans find out about this. Right? My bishop will be on to me tomorrow morning. <laughs> <laughs> but for real though, I mean, there, there is, it's funny because I read a lot of um, process theology and it challenges me. And this goes back to the kind of honesty and courage thing is, you know, part of what I want to interrogate in myself is what is it about some kind of 
you know, Catholic theology and traditional viewpoints that I'm so married to that I'm not willing to give up. And, you know, am I, am I a positive, um, positive theologian? And what do I, what do I really think about that? Because mm-hmm. I do that, you're right, completely. Mm-hmm. I do, I do. I even noticed a few times uh, in your chapter about the cross that there were times where, I mean, there's certainly times where I'm like, okay, this seems to resonate with what I understand of like a lot of Anglican theology and quote unquote Orthodox theology, if you will. But then there are times where it feels like you're deviating away. Um, you're, you know, you, you, I think you cited Emsham Copeland in that chapter, uh, and she definitely deviates a little way from some of those traditional understandings of the cross. And that's not to say that like, all womanist theologians deviate from traditional understandings of the cross. But it is to say that, you know, someone like Copeland does, Dolores Williams certainly does. And it seems like at times you're sort of interplaying between the two. And I, I find that really interesting. I don't know if you have any kind of thoughts around uh, around that. But yeah, it, in terms of, you know, not just kind of coming out of that conversation around process theology, it does seem like there are times where uh, you're you're willing to kind of dabble in into theology that maybe you are a little bit more courageous than you're giving yourself cre- credit for. Yeah, that, that's fair. I mean, I, you know, I think a lot of people when they when they see what I read are really surprised by it because I will I will literally read anything from you know very conservative Catholic theologians like Bishop Athanasius Schneider who is like way out <laughs> on one side. To people who are completely the opposite end. And and for me, there's something about I'm I'm honest enough, I think, to to accept that I am on a journey with all of this stuff. And there's something for me about the fact that I do believe in an objective truth and I'm willing to find that truth in all kinds of places. And therefore, also in my in my reading and my writing, I'm willing to, you know, accept that I think <sighs> what I write is for me where I am at the time. Mm-hmm. And that actually it, no, nothing is fixed. So I do think I, I do double yeah in a in a lot of um, different theologies and I think I'm still working out a lot of what I think about the cross and the resurrection and and eternity like these things for me are being constantly worked out and I'm definitely open to my mind being changed in them but I'm also when a friend pointed this out to me the other day that as a writer and a member of the clergy unlike a lot of other queer theologians who are also clergy, I inhabit a weird space because I'm not in the academy. I am actually still in full-time parish ministry. And that does, you know, it's, it's a subtle difference, but it, it does, I think, change your relationship to the church because actually I am housed and fed <laughs> by the church, literally. And I think a lot of people who write queer theology who are clergy are not. And there is, that's a subtle difference there that I think is an interesting one that a friend of mine who's a, a prominent black theologian pointed out to me that I hadn't quite noticed. And I do wonder sometimes how much that weighs on what I say and how I think publicly. Speaking of the cross, I found this, it was a short section, but I found it to be really powerful. But how is the cross a black queer revolution? It's a tough one. I mean, I'm, I'm, there's something, and Pamela Lightsey says this in the foreword, actually, that there are problems with using the cross as the interpretation tool of Black life, because mm-hmm. it, it does kind of tie our Black experience to one that is kind of more rooted in suffering than in life and joy. Mm-hmm. And so I, I see that there are problems there for me in using that image too much. 
But how is it a, a black queer revolution? Is that what you said? Mm-hmm. I think there was something really powerful. And I, I couldn't get away from this in kind of writing the book of Christ's body when read as a, as a black queer body. And I, I really personally can't see any other way of reading it. Taking upon itself the worst that the world and the empire can do to it and, and surviving that, you know, eventually um, triumphing over that. Because I do think, you know, my experience of black queer community is that we, we, we do often talk about our pain and we do often talk about our wounds, but in a context of deep joy and hope and perseverance. And I think those two things do tie us up in some way to what I think the cost is about, which is this, this image of absolute violence that now post the resurrection takes on a very different meaning, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think there's something about us in, in how we look, for, look back to our black queer ancestors that gives us a similar kind of thing of their bodies are symbols of often the violence that they have experienced and encountered. But fundamentally, we look back to them because also they made it, mm. you know? Um, and for me, there's something there about the hope that we get from that, which is revolutionary, which spurs us on to kind of say, actually, you know, Jesus is both our ancestor and our present friend and our savior in a very powerful way. You know, again, because the book is all about grace, I'm kind of interested in knowing where have you found grace recently? Yeah, gosh. Funnily enough, I mean, you know, that language about the famine of grace and tying it up into the church, I, I don't find, um, I haven't found grace often in the church. I... Mm. You know, in this local community, and I've only been here uh, about two months now, there are so many people who are really struggling, um, you know, big problems in terms of addiction, poverty, you know, and lots of, lots of our, our friends in need in this community are such kind of, like they, 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 they do bless me in, in such a deep way. And it is something about the vulnerability and the openness and the love that they show me, actually, that I, I find, you know, they are such beacons and images and icons of Christ for me. And there's a, you know, there are problems with that in terms of how we can read people who are experiencing poverty, right? As just seeing them as how we want to read them. Mm-hmm. But there is for me a genuine thing of, you know, getting to the end of the day and, and thinking, gosh, you know, whoever it might be that I see, you know, Hugh or Katrina or whoever it might be here who actually so affirms the reality of God for me that I find deeply powerful in a way that I don't experience often mm-hmm. in Christian community. But also now and again, mm-hmm. now and again, I see that. But definitely there. Yeah, for sure. lovely. And there are people who remind me about what, the, what Jesus is about and, and what the church is for, mm-hmm. which I find I can forget when I'm speaking to colleagues often or when I'm in deeply Christian environments. Actually, I, I leave so disillusioned and disheartened in those mm. spaces, but the opposite happens for me when I'm in different company. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. This might be a pretty obvious question, but how is your book inspiring and liberating theological work? Oh, I think I've had so many conversations with people who seem, you know, often quite surprising people who are coming from a very different place who are willing to kind of have conversations with me about their own position. So I've had conversations with black theologians, for example, who um, are working out where they sit on you know, issues to do with um, trans folk. And who I know are having that conversation for the first time because of the tenor of the conversation that we're having. 
And I don't know where that might end for them, but I think it is liberating their own work because I think for the first time they're, they're perhaps engaging with some of this stuff on a deeper level. And I've also had people like, you know, bishops in this country who are engaging with this work. And, for, you know, that there's been a lot here on black theology in the UK that, that people have engaged in, but very little has been at the intersection of race and sexuality. Mm. And I think if people are at least engaging with this in an open mind, um, with an open mind, then it will liberate their theology and, and their work. Um, because it is at least reminding them that people who are black and not heterosexual actually exist. And it is incredible how often you hear this narrative of, you know, if the Church of England was to change its teaching on marriage, African Anglicans can't cope with it. And it's this idea that, you know, LGBT Africans or black folk just don't exist, which I hear all the time. Mm. Uh, so if it just does that, if it just troubles the water on that one narrative, then it is, mm-hmm. it is I think, liberating. Yeah, that's the one thing I, I absolutely love about the book is because you bring your full self to the book, regardless of who you are and for the most part, regardless of your identity, there is something to be learned and there's something to be liberated from based on your work. And I think that's one of the really powerful uh, parts of the book and in reading it. And uh, I, I very much love it for that. Thank you. No, I appreciate that a lot. So last question, Drell, how can listeners get connected to you in your work? So I'm on Twitter at frjarellrb. I'm um, also on Instagram on that same app. Um, my work is, some of it's on YouTube, but otherwise a Google search should hopefully um, take you there. And the book is available um, by SEM Press, also on um, Blackwells and Waterstones and Amazon and other places as well. Lovely. Well, thank you again for chatting a little bit more about the book. It was one of my favorites that I've read so far this year. It's just been really incredible and a a very necessary work in the world. And uh, thank you so much to chat a little bit more about it and to get to know you a little bit more. You've been such a supportive, wonderful friend over the last year or so getting to know you. And so it's just so great to to see this out in the world now and uh, to be able to chat and uh, a little bit more about it. Really great to connect with you and to, to meet you as well. Thank you so much. I drove around this town and looks the same as If you would like to connect with Jarrell and Watashi Wa and their work, you can find links in the episode description. Thank you again for listening to another episode of A People's Theology. If you liked what you heard, please give the podcast a five-star rating and review. Also, please support the podcast at my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Mesa And remember, friends, go and be the theology to the world that inspires and liberates. Try to